Hidden Gems, Episode 7, Designer Spotlight on Stefan Dora. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And I'm Cameron. Thanks for listening to our show. Welcome back, Cameron. Yeah, it's good to be back. I was going to say, I thought we had a new guest host this week. <laughs> it was almost like we were going to bring someone new on the show. Exactly. Oh, wait. We did. We did. <laughs> <laughs> thought about replacing you. <laughs> so yeah, uh, doing that. things a little bit different this week, folks. We've got a special guest host with us today. We've hinted at it a little bit over the life of this podcast that we would really like to get some members of our game group onto the podcast to get their perspective because we're really blessed and fortunate to have a huge one. Mm-hmm. And this week we have one of our elder statesman here of the board game group mr bill arney joining us today yes. welcome to the podcast bill <laughs> thanks chris and welcome. the rest of you young pops good to be here <laughs> the, the honored first guest spot that's right i'm sure there are some of our game group members listening right now who are super jealous of you right now and i'm not going to mention any names ben <laughs> i can't wait to bring ben on the show oh though, my he, gosh at this point, we've railed on him so much. It's right. going to be wild. It will be long overdue. It, it'll, it'll be his chance for vengeance. <laughs> That's right. oh, yeah. I've sat across the table from Ben a lot. It'll be interesting to hear Ben on the show. For sure. All right, Bill. Well, since you're joining us for the first time today, we'd like you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and a little bit about your gaming background. Okay. Well, I'm Bill Arney. I'm uh, married to a young woman named Kathy, and we're coming up on our 30th wedding anniversary here Ooh, in a couple of weeks. Awesome. So that's awesome. uh, to tell you, depending on context of uh, how young these other guys are around me. I have uh, two <laughs> girls who are graduates from Carolina from just up the road, and I'm a software Woo-hoo. engineer. Woo-hoo. Go Carolina. Go Carolina. Gross. Go heels. <laughs> From the, from the Duke man at the table. <laughs> My hobbies are video editing, but I have to say I've got some dust on it because I was doing Premiere 4.2, I think, was the last time I was doing it. So for those of you who know video editing, that's ancient history. I like mountain biking. I do yoga. I do spin classes back in the times when we were having spin classes. Hopefully, that'll start back up again. My gaming background. Well, right now, I'm way into VR. Yes, so. you are. Yeah. <laughs> so I have, I have two Oculus headsets, the Quest 1 and Quest 2. And I, I bring them here every once in a while and try to get somebody hooked into it. And I've yet to get these guys to bite. But that, that'll happen someday. Um, we just did it the other day. A friend of ours had it over at a, a birthday party that I was at. And my wife tried it. For the first time. Have you done the plank? Where you oh, yeah. ride an elevator up to the top of this building and then it, the, the elevator door right. opens and there's just a two by four in front of you <laughs> out the side of the out the side of the, <laughs> the skyscraper. No so, my wife did that for the first time the other day and it was hilarious. We couldn't even see what she was seeing, but it was hilarious. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a Richie's plank experience and that is the quintessential Hello World program that you right. show everybody who's new. Because yeah, yeah, one of the things it does really well is translate heights. There's a lot of games that do that. There's a climbing experience. That's one of the games you pull out of the bag for the first person who's like looking at it. They're like, whoa. It's, super cool. it's also pretty fun yeah. to watch people play Beat Saber when you can't see what they're <laughs> oh, seeing. Yeah. A lot of really yeah. fun dance moves. Yeah, no doubt. To go back in time, I cut my teeth on Scrabble. I had a grandma who loved Scrabble mm. and would cut you if you freed up the triple word score for people. <laughs> and played with the rest of my cousins, Rook, for those of you who know Rook. And oh, you, yeah. Yes, you know Rook. And so are you a Rook high person or a Rook low person? Do you know what I'm even saying? No. So, the, the rook so is you're the, a Brook Low person, apparently. I, I guess so. <laughs> you, should, you, you, you should be, because the rook is the trump, and some people play as the highest trump card oh, is worth 20 points, and, and some people play as the lowest trump card. Rook high. 
Oh, and we're Wicklow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, but, no, yeah, you went to Duke. I understand. That. <laughs> oh my god! All right. Well, uh, well, it's been good to have you. <laughs> and that's um, Bill, right? And then I, it was fun listening to you guys talk about the old games in your first episode. I had an Apple IIe as my first computer, and we had to like hack our games to get into the sector editor before we could play any of the games. <laughs> but yeah, that was pretty cool. And I guess my board game experience is I've been kind of the game master in our family. I'm kind of the Chris, I guess, of the group with the rest of my family. And we go to the beach once a year, and we have a week long. Hang out the beach for a little while, and in the afternoon heat, play board games all week, and it's just awesome. So Cool. Sounds like fun. Nice. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Well, thank you. Welcome. So we have a cocktail this week. We do indeed. So a special cocktail this week. Speaking of the beach. Speaking of the beach, mm-hmm. yeah. So for this week, I picked a cocktail that pretty much everybody knows. There's nothing secret or special about this one. I picked a Mai Tai. Picked it for several reasons, actually. So we're reviewing an island-themed game today by Stefan Dora, so I thought it was appropriate in that regard. But I also chose the Mai Tai because it's a bit of a stronger drink. Wanted to give something for Bill to loosen up a little bit. <laughs> the new guy appreciates that. I quite did. I have to tell you, I, I'm delighting just a little bit in seeing how nervous that you are right now because it's making me less nervous. <laughs> <laughs> It helps a lot, actually. It's but you're doing great. It's oh, throwing us back to our, our first episode and Absolutely. how nervous we felt. Absolutely. And then also, Cameron's back with us from Hawaii, where he had yeah. multiple Mai Tais, from what I've heard. So. Yeah, it was kind of a crazy experience. I didn't know this about Hawaii, but apparently Mai Tais are like a pretty big deal, and everyone's sort of competing over who has the best Mai Tai. Mm-hmm. And, and people ask you, where have you been? Have you been to Duke's? You know, And then they're like, well, make sure you try the Mai Tai. <laughs> and, and I should say, I'm not usually a huge rum guy, necessarily. Yeah. If I'm going to have a cocktail, usually I'm aiming at something that's whiskey-based. But it was actually a pretty fun experience, especially because in Maui, in particular, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So you could get, you know, the tiki cup, right. glass cup, or someone wants to serve it to you in like a pineapple <laughs> like uh, one of them was on we went on a snorkeling trip and they just opened the bar up and they're like you want a mai tai and, and they just give you a mai tai in a plastic cup so <laughs> mai tai's come in all shapes and sizes there and and uh, had some pretty good ones and had some okay ones and some that just tasted like juice so how does mine stack up honestly it's really good that molasses rum that you use and it's really really nice i think it gives that like i call it the low note flavor right Right, it's right. like the base note. It's really nice. Well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I use a uh, Blackstrap rum, Cruzon Blackstrap rum that you can get at most stores, and I highly recommend it. It's got a very strong molassesy flavor to it that I like quite a bit. It'll really go a long way in your Mai Tais for sure. So it's awesome to hear about your Hawaii trip. Are there any other highlights that you want to to hit um, sure yeah so the, actually that snorkeling trip was phenomenal i had never been snorkeling before even though i grew up on the coast and did a lot of swimming in the ocean as well but i get the fins on get my gear and everything and I, you know plunge right in the water and of course casey's like ah, it's really cold and, and stuff and i'm like no it's fine just jump in but i start trying to get into a position where i can actually see you know fish and stuff in the bottom but i'm like, plowing through the water arm over arm like an idiot <laughs> because that's not how you snorkel splash, splash. yeah and i like yeah. I there's like not a go, fish for like a mile around a you, you like, just float man exactly casey comes up to me i'm just like i'm kind of tired like i don't think i can do this for you know an hour <laughs> she's like just stop doing that <laughs> just float and once i got that concept into my brain it, it was magical yeah i mean you're floating over these rock surfaces and you're seeing all the fish and everything at one point i actually managed to swim over this little crevice and and literally as i emerged over the edge of this crater mm-hmm. 
four feet away from me probably is a huge a sea turtle oh dude that's awesome it was like the that's experience cool. that i like wanted to have snorkeling yeah, that's awesome man. it's good to have you back jason and i did our best attempts at flavor text i i <laughs> i, I observed you'll, you'll he, never be able to beat my pirate i know you there's know, no way man jason's got it it's gonna take a spectacular performance to beat shane Hines. it was phenomenal it was hilarious i really enjoyed getting to catch up on what i missed out on in terms of being here so yeah man good to have you back Cool. Yeah. Well, I actually hear there's a uh, a lot of activity nowadays on the guild, right? Yeah, man. Our guild is blowing up right now, and it's awesome. That's, that's uh, cool. And I say blowing up. I mean, we don't have like hundreds of guild members right now, but just to give you a little bit of perspective, so in episode four, mm-hmm. the last time we talked about the guild, we had thirteen guild members. As it stands today, we have forty-seven guild wow. members. Wow. Yeah, man. That's cool. awesome. That's phenomenal. This is one of the most encouraging things so far for me about the podcast is how much of a response the guild has gotten. Mm -hmm. Because not only do we have 47 members now, which is pretty respectable across a lot of podcast guilds in BGG, but our guild is very active. Wow. Honestly, it would be worth joining just to meet all these other people in our guild and get board game recommendations. There's a lot of other like gym seekers out there. Oh, yeah. We coined that term, but there really are people out there that are doing what we're doing and trying to find new games. There are a few people in our guild. So let's just put it this way. I thought that I knew a lot about board games, and I feel like my board game knowledge is pretty decent, but there are some people in our guild who put me to shame honestly i mean they just have such a knowledge you know they've been playing for so long you can tell that they just know about games Mm -hmm. and we have a thread on our guild where people give recommendations it's called gym miners wanted and people post in there all the time and there are probably almost 200 games in there now of just you know games that people think are really good that aren't getting enough attention awesome well sadly uh, yeah never get to them <laughs> probably not we're gonna try though we're gonna but we'll try. have a lot more options to choose from when we go to outline episodes for sure we, we've got episodes forever now so there's a thread on there that i want to comment on it talks about <laughs> should you attack the person in first place or or not as part of the strategy for winning the game i wrote a thesis on that and i held back <laughs> because i was afraid somebody might think i'm from duke or something but i'll comment on it now that I think there's a slight difference to, I'd like to add to that is that you attack the person that you think is most likely going to win. And sometimes that isn't what is being presented on the board. Like all the times Chris is like, oh, guys, it's just, <laughs> it's just not happening this game for me. I'm, I'm totally in last. Everybody's picking on me, and then he don't, wins by 50 points. Don't give away my secret. <laughs> exactly. Every I, game. I, I have mastered the ability of playing dead and trying to get some sort of mercy to yeah. use to my, <laughs> my advantage. Elicit the sympathy of your opponents. Oh, that is so true. So this is going to come up later in our discussion of the games. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. Corollary to this, this comment, but yes. <laughs> That's okay. awesome. Yeah, so if okay. you would like to chime in on whether you think you should attack the leader like I do, right? Because that's the right thing to do. <laughs> or do you try to cause maximal pain upon somebody if you hate them, for example? <laughs> you can do that too, so feel free to chime in on the guild. So one other topic we have on the guild is mailbag. And we got a couple more mailbag questions, so we're going to dive into that right now. Yeah, so one uh, of our guild members, Daryl Boone, runs the Board Gems YouTube channel, and he's a friend of the show, so go check him out if you're interested in this type of content and want more. He's doing good stuff over there. So his question from the mailbag was, what modern game that everyone else seems to love can you not stand, and why? Yes. 
gonna piss some people off. Yeah, well, being the token curmudgeon on the show, <laughs> although I think I've given higher ratings than most of y'all on a lot of episodes that we've done so far, but yeah. This didn't take much for me. I, I scanned through the top 50 games on BGG and was just like, yep, don't like that one. Yep, hate that one. Yep, no, don't like that one. So I, I had a couple options here, but I'll just throw out a few. Uh, so one for me, and this is a big one, Pandemic Legacy. Mm. I was not a fan. I, I went through the entire first season, just could not get into that one. It just seemed like the same thing over and over <laughs> and over again. And you add a sticker here, you add a sticker there, and you agonize over which sticker to add and it's just like i just i don't care <laughs> i actually like this one all right yeah wasn't a fan yeah it's still pandemic right <laughs> it's true it's true which is not a bad game right in isolation but if you make me play it 20 times in a row then it's just like okay yeah enough, is, enough is enough i'll just throw out one more i know this one will hit chris blood rage not a what? fan. <laughs> not a fan of Blood Rage. Well, I'm not a fan of dudes on a map games in general, I think. I, I backed Rising Sun on Kickstarter and got rid of that one after playing it like two or three times. I, I think that's just a genre that maybe I'm not a fan of. But yeah, I know that's a big one for a lot of people. I mean, Blood Rage is probably like a four out of six for me in our skill. I think it's a good game. Maybe a five. I don't know. I haven't played it in a long time, but I do enjoy the game quite a bit. I, I I do think maybe people are infected with Eric Lang fever, you know, and all the minis, right? All the plastic. It looks cool on the table. I get it. The game is good. I I like the game. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad game. It's just not for me, right? That's that was the question. Right? Oh, okay. What? Well, I'm going to say a game. I think it's bad. Oh, okay. Personally. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm listing games that personally were not for me. Right. Okay. I'm not saying Pandemic Legacy is a bad game. Okay. Plenty of people obviously enjoy it. Same with Blood Rage, right? They just didn't hit me the right way. Okay. Bill, what do you think? I was thinking of two, but I'm going to go with Settlers of Catan. Oh, so, oh, wow. You know, it's just, I know a lot <laughs> of people right like, we're, just, I will we're still slaying actually, them all. Right. <laughs> no, just, go right for the heart. Exactly. Do um, you put a little extra rum in his uh, <laughs> Mai Tai? <laughs> <laughs> what I feel like happens so often in that game, depending on the roll of the dice and who goes first, that the game is over before you even start mm. just because of, of the math of it Pla- all. Placement, initial placement. placement. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you're stuck in a game for another hour that you know that you don't have a chance to win. But yeah, that's my beef with it. I get that. Cameron, what do you think? All right, I think I figured out the one that you were guessing. i just looking through a list of top games because I, I do have issues with this one, and it's Scythe. People, I knew it. People love Scythe. When that game was relatively new, I went to Europe for three months and they came back and you guys had played it 47 times. So I come in, I'm like, great, Scythe, I've played that before. Let's sit down. And I get crushed by the second turn. And I was just like, oh, okay. All right, everyone, you memorize exactly how to play your color and then you just play the game. And if you don't have the exact algorithm of how to play that color, like memorized, the opening you're strategy. Toast. You're toast. Yeah, if you don't get the first couple turns right, it doesn't really matter I, I what cards you get and whatever other random things happen. You're done. For the record, Scythe is a top five game of all time for me. I, I do think, yeah, <laughs> I do think that factions have certain opening moves. I guess that you need to make with them, and I guess you could see that as a fault of the game. But I do think the game is phenomenal. Personally, I love it a lot. Do you dislike it just because you feel like you were just behind on it? Or do you actually have, like, a problem? No, no, I think my beef with it is that it felt like, at least for my game community, there was not going to be an opportunity for me to catch up in terms of how to learn how to play the game as optimally as everyone else. And so I found myself sitting in two-and-a-half-hour-long games 
just being part of the company rather than playing a game that I was actually a meaningful contributor to. It was like, oh, if I play this again, am I actually going to be a competitor that time or not? How many times am I going to have to play this game before I am competitive with it? Because you guys are so well-versed in that game. And to me, if you have to be well-versed in a game to be a contributor, then that poses issues for me. Sounds like a strategic game to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not as hot on side as I think a lot of people are, but it's definitely a solid game. I love the art. I own it. I I still have it around. Six out of six for me. All right, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's awesome. It's between a four and a five for me. It's definitely good. We'll Billy, play, we need we'll to play get you it. on that one. No, I have it. I own it, and I played it. And I, oh, and I, oh, I feel okay. you, Cameron. Especially if you randomly do the cards and you yes. mismatch a card with a You're with like, a race. well, I've never played white before. Never, now I don't white. know what to do. You know, right. I'm going to get a bottom card that doesn't mesh well with it. <laughs> yes. You're, you're kind of screwed from the beginning. So, yeah, I, I feel your pain on it sometimes. I have issues with faction-oriented games anyway, where you need to know how that faction is like geared in order to play the game well. And mm-hmm. if you either are unfamiliar with it or there's like a random component to it, 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 it can cause issues. But... It should be a thing that everyone has to grapple with while you're playing. Right. I kind of like that person. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> moving on. Yeah, let's move on. So we had. Oh wait, no, mine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I- I'm building up for this. I'm, dude, I'm ready. All right, listen. <laughs> let's hear it. This is a game that I think is bad. Okay. I'm so sick of seeing this game on Instagram. <laughs> I'm going to upset people. I have no doubt because people love this game. They think it's great. I think it's just a bad game. And it's kind of funny. I'm talking about it right now because I actually sold it to Bill. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. Uh-oh. It's Sagrada. Oh, that's hysterical. I actively hate Sagrada. <laughs> it's bad. And I'll tell you why I think it's bad. Okay, really briefly. I want to defend it because I know a lot of people love this game. The secret objectives ruin Sagrada for me. Oh. So there's a secret objective in the game where everybody gets a die of certain color. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if your die is the blue die you want to try to get as many blue dice as you can because you'll get a number of points to go to the pips on those die that is all that matters in this game and i would challenge anybody to prove me wrong and i can actually say that when bill and i played it for the first time i did a bad job of explaining the rules to bill Mm -hmm. and bill thought that you just got one point for every color of your secret die that you got on your board so he was kind of trying to do it but wasn't aggressively going after it he was trying to do the public objectives too and i crushed them because they didn't know that Mm -hmm. right the the secret objective die is king in that game and it just ruins it for me because it makes your turn obvious Mm -hmm. i'm always going to take my color every time even if it's a one it's worth taking i could go on and on about sagrada i want but it's a bad game, and I would love to debate anybody on our guild about why they think it might not be, but I don't like Sagrada at all. All right, so we had one other question come in from the mailbag from RJ, user mm-hmm. Ron Tuaru, and he asked, what's a hidden gem mechanism that you feel is underused or rarely used in games these days that you'd like to see more of? I had to think about this one for a while. Yeah, this is a um, tough question. I, I think my answers fit this question, but... We'll, we'll see what you guys think. The simultaneous auction. 
This is Nefertiti, right? Multiple auctions going on at the same time where you have to be constantly balancing your resources between different auctions, figuring out how to balance when they're going to end and which ones to focus on. Everybody knows my opinion on Nefertiti at this point, but I really enjoyed that. I think it's a cool mechanism that I haven't really seen done elsewhere. And I say this cautiously because I'm positive somebody's going to be like, oh yeah, there's five other games out there that, that do this. But uh, I'm sure there are more. There's one that I can think of off the top of my head that I've actually thought about including in this show. So there's a game by Scott Nicholson called Going Going Gone. <laughs> Hmm. And it's simultaneous auctions, but in real time. So you're wow. actually throwing cubes and cups, bidding for multiple different auctions all at the same time on a clock. That sounds chaotic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We might try it sometime. Wow. Sounds yeah, like th- that one does come to mind. I think for me, the one that I thought of, the reason I thought of it was a discussion I had on our BGG Guild, actually. So the game No Thanks, we mentioned mm. either last episode or the episode before, and I mentioned it... <laughs> somewhat dismissively as a game that I thought was just kind of meh, which I do think it's kind of meh. But one of our guild members, Jay Takagi, who is an awesome guild member, super knowledgeable, knows a lot about games, kind of pushed back on me a little bit on that one because he feels like No Thanks is a pretty quality game, which I get. I I see its value. Mm -hmm. But I think that auction mechanism where you're putting a chip or a marker on something, delaying... But then those markers build up on that thing until a point where you're like, I'm going to pass and take all this bidding power mm-hmm. is a cool mechanism that needs to be used more. There are only two games that I know of that do this. Mm. One's called Lesko, Exploring Ancient Art, okay, yep. that uses it in a really cool way, which I actually think is much better than No Thanks. So if you like No Thanks, check out Lesko. And then there's a train game called Mogul that also uses this mechanism. But outside of those two, I can't think of any that use it, and I think it's cool. Nice. The one that I thought of, we've actually talked about quite a bit on the show because it's, it's been featured in two different games, but I, it, I've i found that when we're playing a game that uses that mechanism, I really enjoy it, and I feel really engaged in the game, and that is the fixed resource auction of Strasbourg and Metropolis, where you have your oh, pool of resources. and a, you, you're, a finite pool, yeah. You're finite, yeah. I really like that. I feel like it gives you this thing to focus on and manage throughout the course of the game or the round or whatever it happens to be that I would love to see in more games because yeah. I feel like if I like those two that much that if I saw it again I probably would yeah. enjoy that as well once it's gone it's gone yep yeah. yep cool well I'm not even sure if you can count this as a mechanism and I, I don't know if it's a recent invention if there's really any hidden gems to it but the trader dynamic that's in Portrayal in the House in the Hill okay. where one person takes over what the, the goal is for the game, and then everybody else cooperatively works against that person. We've enjoyed that dynamic a lot in the house, and I can't actually think of other games that are like that, that has that mechanism. But I appreciate the fact that in some co-op games, you don't have an intelligence behind your opponent there that you get in that game. So, sure. Anyway. I, I, I kind of yeah, it's pretty unique. I, I honestly can't think of another game that does it quite like that either, to be quite honest. Yeah, very unique for sure. Yeah, I haven't played that one, but would like to. It's fun. Cool. So before we get into the games, this episode, we're talking about three games by a designer by the name of Stefandora. Yes. So Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about Stefandora before we launch into the games? Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed doing a little bit of investigative journalism on Reiner Knizia, learn a little bit more about him. So I did it on Stefandor as well. Admittedly, there's not nearly as much about this guy as there is Reiner, but I did find some things that I think some of the listeners might find interesting. Stefandor has been around for a long time. 
every entry designer and board game in BGG has an ID, which I believe what that means is what time they were actually added to the BGG database. Mm. Right, yeah, pretty sure. That's the way the games work. Right. So he's ID 12. He's been around forever, okay? But he's got a lot of, no- well, I was going to say notable designs. He actually doesn't have a lot of notable designs. I think he should have more, but he's kind of overlooked. Mm. If you know Stefan Dora, the one game you probably know by him is For Sale. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have played for sale or not. It's oh, yeah. a really neat auction game, yeah. a filler game. It's a good game for sure. He also has some more games that are a little bit more notable, like Intrigue, Niet, Lenny One slash Streetcar. That we love like. Lenny One. Yeah, it's awesome. We like that game a lot here. So he's got some notable designs, like Reiner Knizia. Stefan Dora is from a very small village in Germany, and interestingly, when he's not designing games, he is a speech therapist in a special school for physically disabled children. Wow. Wow, that's cool. cool. How cool is that, right? Very cool stuff. When asked about gaming, he says it's a regular part of his life. He games pretty much every day, whether it be with his friends or his family. He particularly enjoys card games, which again is not too surprising because he's designed some good ones yet and slough off come to mind. One type of game that he actively dislikes is co-op games. I can get behind that. <laughs> so this is his quote, and I think this actually give you a little bit of insight into the kind of games he designs. He said, Personally, I'm not a fan of cooperative games. I enjoy games where you can directly take actions against the other players. <laughs> yep. Yep. There you go. <laughs> I can see that. Yep. And then uh, finally, for his hobby, he does not collect airline spoons. He plays badminton. <laughs> All right. Not professionally or yeah. anything, mm-hmm. but he says he enjoys badminton, so, you know. Badminton's fun. It is fun. I haven't played it in a long time. Yeah. It's fun. I enjoy it. My kids play in the backyard all the time. I like it. Nice. So, you go. That's Stefan Dora. Very cool. All right. Well, that's a little bit about Stefan Dora. Let's get into the games. Let's do it. Hellas, 480 B.C. It is the rise of the classic Greek civilization. After a period of war, the Greek returned to their country and continued the hard work at the islands. The building and development of large cities is the next step into a new era. Hellas. <laughs> Would have been better with a pirate accent. <laughs> totally. Hellas! Hellas. Alright. Hellas, designed in 2016 by White Goblin Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG rank is 4,794. Wow. So how did I hear about this game? As you know, I love the Dice Tower. I heard about this on the Dice Tower on a segment they call Everything is Awesome. (laughs) Or, I think that's right. Every game is awesome. That's what it is. So this was a segment that Tom used to do with somebody in his game group called Jason Levine. And Tom spoke very highly of this game, actually, and it got my attention. So I knew about it from that, but what really caused me to pull the trigger on it was in our guild, one of our guild members, when I threw out recommendations for Stefan Dora, mentioned this one, and that was Ghidorah. Oh, okay. One of our friends of the podcast. So, Ghidorah, this review is for you. All right. Brief rule summary on Hellas. In Hellas, basically what you're trying to do is you are trying to erect cities on the very small island of Hellas, okay? And you do that through action selection. So everybody on their turn is going to have 
anywhere between three and four purple cubes that are their action selection cubes. On your turn, you will place a cube on actions that run across the top of the board. And if you select that action, that action can no longer be selected for the remainder of the round. Okay, so there's a little bit of competition there over those spots. Let's talk about what each one of the spots does in detail. So the first spot is very simple. You place a cube on this spot and you're able to construct a house anywhere that you want on the island of Hellas. Houses are very useful in that they generate marble when they're adjacent to quarries. There is another spot that you can select, which is your palace. Mm -hmm. Palaces are very important because they convert your villages, which are made up of houses, into cities. And you need cities in order to score points in this game, being adjacent to temples and statues and different things on the board. The quarry space is particularly interesting in this game. So what the quarry does is when somebody selects it, everybody at the table will generate marble. Marble is your currency. This is how you pay for your actions in this game. In order to generate marble, you have to have houses next to quarries. So the quarry number from 1 to 40. The lower the number, the more marble they generate. All the way up to 40, which just generates one marble per generation. If you select that action, everybody gets marble. But what's interesting is if you're the person that selects the action, you also get to draw more quarry tiles from a stock, which may cause quarries to become inactive, and then you can select where new quarries go out on the board. I'm going to cover this in detail because I think it's important. Okay. So the way it works, let's say for simplicity's sake, the 20, the 21, and the 22 quarry are on the board. If I draw the 33 quarry. It's higher than all those other quarries. It will go on top of one of those three quarries, whichever one I want, particularly the ones that my opponents are bending from the most. Mm -hmm. But what happens if I draw a quarry that's less than one of those numbers? Well, the highest quarry on the board at that time becomes inactive, and then a new quarry will form somewhere on the board, wherever the prospector is, and then I will get to move that prospector somewhere else, which should be beneficial to me, wherever I have houses. Okay. That's how the quarry works. The temple spaces let you add pillars to the temples on the board. Being adjacent to these temples will gain you points based on however many pillars are in the temples. And then there's another space that lets you put a statue on the board. Being adjacent to these statues gains you three points at the end of the game. That's basically the gist of how the game works. We'll fill in some of the blanks when we're talking about some of our discussion. But basically the idea of the game is you select an action... Some of those actions you can piggyback off of, and I actually didn't explain that well. Some of those actions, when you take them, the people at the table will follow you. And some of those actions that you take, only you will do. At the end of three rounds, whoever has the most points wins the game. So that's generally how you play the game Hellas. So like I said in the rules overview, there's this idea of the quarry. And I wanted to explain the quarry in detail because I think it is one of the most, if not the most interesting aspect of the game. How did you all feel about this quarry mechanism? Do you feel like it added anything to the game? What do you think about the quarry here? Not the first time we've asked about the quarry mechanism <laughs> in the game. That's right. Yes, Jason, what, are, what are your opinions about the quarry mechanism in this game? <laughs> well, fortunately, I, ha I have a better opinion of the quarry in this game than I did in Via Appia. Yeah, I found this mechanism to be really interesting. It forces you to speculate to a degree on where you think the next quarry is going to pop up because... Over time, obviously, the, the quarries are going to reduce their production. You mentioned the higher the number, the lower the production of the quarry. Right. Right. So it, 
the low numbers produce four marble per house that you have next to a quarry and then reduces down to one until it eventually closes. And aside from being really thematic, which I think mm-hmm. is cool, it just forces you to constantly be looking ahead because that's your only source of income. And so you know that your income is going to dry up eventually. So you have to constantly be thinking, okay, well, where do I need to be building houses in advance, trying to hopefully place them where a new quarry is going to pop up and I can get more. So yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I would echo those sentiments as well. I was fascinated by the quarry mechanism and the precision with which it actually lines up with the reality of mining out of a quarry in terms of the resources getting lower and lower and lower until it's like, okay, we can't really get anything else out of right. this mine vein or a quarry with marble or something like that. we got to move on. The production just gets lower and lower. I thought that was an awesome way to tie the thematic mechanic that you're trying to go for with the mechanisms of the game that you actually have to depend on during gameplay for sure and it can be really tempting to neglect the quarry because one of the things that's interesting about the quarry is if an opponent selects it you get marble right which is great right they kind of did that for you i get marble that you need to build things mm-hmm. but where they'll get you <laughs> is if you don't take the quarry action let's say i'm sitting on a number four quarry it's generating four marble a turn that's great and i've got like, two guys next to it if Bill takes the quarry action and draws a 38, you know, guess where control. that 38 is going? Yeah. It's going right on top of my four. Yeah. And it's yep. gone at that point. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I take the action, I can prevent that. I'll get one more good generation out of it. So it really makes that spot desirable. Mm-hmm. But all the spots are desirable in yep. this game. That's what's cool yep. about it, right? Yeah, I, I have to say, I've, I've never seen anything like it before. And... I'm glad I got to play it multiple times because the first time I played it, I did not quite get that dynamic and how it was going to play out. And I was very marble poor for that first game. (laughs) And then the second game, I was marble rich because I figured that out. But then I didn't quite understand the game arc of it because at some point you need to start spending that marble before Mm -hmm. the the game gets out. You really got to start cashing in on that marble with some of those actions at the, at the top. So, yeah, playing the quarries right so you can take advantage of those single action choices at the top is, is super important in this game. Yeah, you definitely won't want to get to the end of the game and be staring at 15 or 20 marble that you never used. <laughs> which you know, which just happened like to me. A killer, right? <laughs> the exchange is so bad in this game. It's almost like getting slapped in the face. It's like, mm. well, you should have used your marble dummy, right? <laughs> you get one point for five marble. You got to use it, but it's hard because the decisions are so tough. You may be asking yourself, well, why wouldn't you always take the quarry? Because it's a great action. But all the actions mm-hmm. are so desirable. It's just such a challenging decision of do I take this house so I can get there before Cameron because I know he's going to try to cut me off? Or do I take the pillars because I know Jason's going to do it before me and then I won't get the benefit of that scoring? Me? Cut you or, off? Yeah, yeah, right. I never. <laughs> or maybe, what if I take this action that I really need, but then I'm short on marble? And then what if Cameron takes this action, and then I can't afford it because I don't have the marble that I need to do the action? Ugh, man. So good. The choices are agonizing, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Timing is everything in this game. Yep. Right? Because you know that you're generally going to benefit off of a good number of the actions. I think it's like at least half of the actions yeah. on the board. You get to follow if somebody else takes that action. And there definitely are situations where you want to be able to do that before everyone else so that you can get a particular spot but in a lot of times you can be like okay i can wait for somebody else to trigger that but what really makes it critical on the timing is that if somebody triggers that one particular action to like build a palace for example and you don't have enough marble at the time then you're out of luck okay build it and in a game where there's only three rounds 
<laughs> There's only three chances to do that. You really have to lock in, okay, when do I need income? And how can I time it with what other people are trying to do so that I make sure that I have what I need when somebody else triggers that action? Planning, planning, planning. I I agree with that. If you don't time particular moves well or aren't setting yourself up for those important timing mechanisms, you'll lose out on like a major chunk of scoring opportunity. You can lose. Right. Right. There is a game mechanism here with the temples where you purchase columns and there's three choices at the top Mm. and there is a real dilemma that you have when you purchase these columns because each temple has a, a different number. You could have four columns to complete it or nine. And when you complete the columns, you'll get a ring. And yeah. whenever you buy one, you get two rings. And those are worth a lot of points. Mm-hmm. And the whole timing of getting it so that you get both those rings really decided a couple of our games. One more thing I wanted to comment on before we move on is I love the follow actions because it decreases downtime. Such a great thing. A lot of games, turns can get long. You're waiting for your turn. In this game, you always feel engaged. Because on over half of the actions, if somebody picks that action, you get to do it too. Mm -hmm. You just do it after them. But it keeps you involved. You don't space out on your phone when somebody else is taking their turn. Because for one, what they're doing usually really matters to you. And two, you often get to do what they're doing too, just after them. I really like that. All right, so how about we uh, transition into cons? Anybody have any issues with the game? So I did have some questions around the rings. I think mm. we I knew did. This was coming from you. Yeah, we, well, we we saw in a lot of the games that we played of this that it seemed as though whoever managed to capitalize on the rings, which again you get from taking the the column actions, was the winner. And I'm not saying that that means that it's imbalanced because I think you can try to compete with other people. Like, don't let somebody take all the rings, right? I think turn order is such an element in this game. Turn order is huge. And it can work out in such a way that it comes to your turn and the board just isn't set up properly to make it beneficial to you or as beneficial as it would be to do something else in order to take the ring actions. And I guess you can sacrifice that and just, you know, take one for the team to try to prevent somebody from building up on the rings. But I questioned a little bit if that was a balance issue there with, with somebody just piling up on the rings. What did you guys think about that? I think it's an issue if you let the person run wild with them. And I think in the games where the person did win with them, it's because they had so many. Way more than everybody else, yeah. right? You, you, you just can't let somebody dominate that spot. And it's hard not to, right? Because those spots are expensive. Yeah. So if you're short on money, you're either I can't do this, or like Jason said, do I just put a cube here just to block? Right. Yes, I think you do. I don't think we were using our cubes to block as much as maybe we needed to. I can't do this action or I can't afford it, but I'm just going to put on here just so you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's a strategy. The other thing that I forgot about, and honestly, it was not a failure on your part of teaching the rules, but I completely had overlooked it during my plays that you get another ring if you finish out the temple. And I think in in that particular game, you actually capitalized on a couple of those because you were like, dude, all I got to do is go take the two columns and then I could get two rings, which makes those rings a lot cheaper. Yep. Yeah. Well, my second game, I did concentrate on getting marble. And so I I was banked with marble, but... I didn't use the column actions in time. And having the rings may be symptomatic of you have enough money to spend it. So things earlier may have worked out for you to do it. One other thing I would say, this isn't a big gripe, 
for me personally, but I'm going to mention it as a con because it might be an issue for some people, is outside of the quarry, which I do think is kind of unique and very thematic, this game doesn't really do anything new, mm. right? It, when you play this game, it will feel familiar. The action selection is very simple. I put a cube on here or I put a worker on here, like worker placement, and it does a thing. And then we go to the next person and you put a cube on here and it does something. This game isn't going to blow your mind with any kind of revolutionary, unique mechanic that you've never seen before. That you're like, wow, it's just not original in that way. I'm not saying I think that's a problem, but I think you should be aware of it. Because I think it is a problem for some people and I think it's probably a reason why it's rated so low as it is. That's not where I thought you were going with that. What I thought you were going to say was that outside of the quarry mechanism, there's not a whole lot of variability to the game. And that was one of the questions that I had. Obviously, you're you're reacting to what other people are doing on the board, and so that's always variable. But in terms of setup Mm -hmm. and the variability that the game itself creates, the quarry is really the only thing. And it makes a big difference. Like We saw some games where income was super tight. We saw other games where people were flush the whole game, right? and it makes a big difference. But I, I wonder a little bit if this game would become kind of samey over time. You, you would start taking on similar strategies each time as you go along. I'm not sure. I think I would have to play it some more. Yeah, I think but. this one is definitely similar to Amiitis in that outside of the core, I think the, the, the challenge the game presents to you each time is just reacting to your opponents because the interaction that occurs on that super tiny island Mm -hmm. gets real vicious real fast (laughs) especially in a four player game Mm -hmm. and you're constantly reacting to how your opponents are playing and that's enough to keep me engaged but I I get what you're saying so before we go into our final thoughts it's been a little bit since we did this let's just recap our scoring criterion so we got Bill on the podcast here just to remind him of how we do things on Hidden Gems so we score on a 1 to 6 scale 1 being the lowest 6 being the highest If we give a game a one, like matcha, last episode, for example, I didn't make that very clear, but that was a one for us, in case you don't know. That means that we think the game is flawed. It's broken, right? There's something wrong with the game, and that's the reason that we don't enjoy it. A two, it's a bad game for us. We don't enjoy it at all. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. We just don't like it. Three is what we call a meh game. It's just okay. We really don't care to play it again. It's just all right. Four is a good game. We would definitely play this game again if people wanted to. We enjoy it. Five, excellent game. Above average. We seek to play this game again. We really like it. And then six is our best games, our favorite games. We really enjoy these games a lot. All right. So having gone through the scoring, why don't we have Bill? Yeah. Kick us off. Yes, kick us off. Go around the table here. the, The pressure. Well, if somebody was going to pull this out on game night, I would be in. So I, I would give it a four. I, I felt like it did have enough mechanisms to make interesting decisions all the way along the whole game. So the, the beginning, middle, and end game were super interesting. I know where I went wrong, and I feel like I could get better at it. I think it's got at least legs for a certain amount of time. Like Jason said, I don't know how long, but I think it's pretty cool. So I'll give it a four. Nice. Yeah, I think I'm probably going to fall in line with Bill here. I agree with a lot of what you said. I gave this game a four as well. I think it's a good game. I enjoyed playing it. would definitely play it again if it came out on the table. It's not one that I think I would go singing its praises, but I could totally understand somebody who did. I think it's definitely worthy of that. I wouldn't be like, you're out of your mind if somebody thought that about this game. Uh, I think for me, it's a great game and would play it again. But yeah, gave it a four. Nice. 
But yeah, Hellas is getting a four for me as well. I would definitely play it again. I think it offers a reasonably short playtime, some good decisions. It requires you to be willing to pivot as your income unexpectedly changes with the quarries dying off randomly, and some strategic thinking about how to minimize how much you help your opponents. So that's a solid four for me. Nice. Four, four, four. Positive reviews all around. So Hellas, as I mentioned before, does absolutely nothing new, really. <laughs> Except for the quarry, right? And I absolutely do not care. <laughs> this game is a six for me. Wow. I love this game. Wow. I love this game. It just scratches all of the right itches for me. I think Bill said something about it last time I played. I was playing really slow. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I lock up in a game, that's usually a good sign because that mm. means I'm thinking about something. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I'm taking a turn really fast in a game, that's bad. Mm. That means the decisions are too easy. Always in this game, I'm looking at the actions and I'm like, oh, I should really take this one because I've got to get there before Cameron. But if I don't take this, then I won't be able to take this and I need to get the columns around that. But if I take this and I want to have enough money to build this thing, if this person does it, there's all these things going on in my head in this game and I love that. The, the spatial puzzle of the board with the tension of the action selection is just perfect for me. Man, it's just got great decisions. Six for me. Love wow. it. Fantastic. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Where can uh, we find Hellas for those that are interested? Yeah, so I've got bad news on this one, guys. This game is rare now. Okay. And I don't know if it's going to ever get brought back. And it's mm. sad. Mm-hmm. It really is. I'm going to try to introduce as many people to this game as possible because I think it's fantastic. There are five copies on BGG right now, and they're expensive. Mm. Wow. And like I said, this game is in the upper 4,000s on BGG, Dang. right? So... If a publisher sees that, it's not really incentive to reprint, yeah. right? And it's unfortunate because I do think it's really good. If you can snag a copy, I'd at least get one to try it. I think it's amazing, but it's hard to find. Wow, very cool. Yeah. The three shocked faces in here, Chris. That's, yeah. right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I'm blown away. Yeah, this is our second six you know, of make... all time, right? Let's see. For me, for sure, I gave Strasbourg a six, of course. You're going well. to talk mean, about amazing. Hellas all the time, too, now? <laughs> oh, that's right. So it's our third six, then. You know, Hellas kind of reminded me of Strasbourg a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so how many games have you lost of Hellas, Chris? I've lost one for sure okay. when I played with Jason. I came okay. in last, actually. Because I got all the rings. You did, but yeah. we let you. So I haven't won it every time. That's not why I like it, Bill. He's <laughs> <laughs> just idly curious. <laughs> no, it just means he's thinking about way more stuff playing this game than we are. So, which is why he will probably beat us every single time we play oh, yeah. from it's now on. It's like equations just going. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on Hellas. That's yes. awesome. Get ready to make tactical decisions. Successfully manage and pay your crew, using all your skills to make clever maneuvers. Whichever player can steer his ship the most swiftly through the islands of the South Sea and successfully establish settlements along the way will claim the victory. The trick is to make as much but spend as little as you can on your journey. Because in the end, the biggest money belt wins. <laughs> okay, can we all do our pirate voices for the whole rest of the review? That's how you do a pirate voice, Jason. Just trying to show me up, man. <laughs> I will say, I have to admit that I looked up YouTube videos on how to speak like a pirate before doing that review because I was nervous about it. And you blew me out of the water. I'm sure. I don't know about yeah. that, man. I still think you're pretty solid. All right. 
Tonga Bonga, yeah. published in 1998, going way back. Designed by, obviously, Stefan Dora. Published by Ravensburger Games, yeah. and it's ranked currently on BGG 4,688. So actually pretty close to, yeah. uh, pretty close to, pretty close to Hellas. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about the rules. In this game, we are racing ships from island to island. Each of the ships starts on the island of Tongabonga. And the goal is to visit four of the other islands and then return back to Tongabonga before any other player returns with the most money. So each round in this game, in turn order, we're going to go through four different phases. Each player has on their ship, printed on the board, three different positions that are available on the ship. There's the captain, there's the first mate, and then the cabin boy. Each round, each player is first going to set a certain amount of money as wages for the top two positions, the, the captain and the first mate for their ship. The, the cabin boy doesn't get paid. And that's basically a bid that you're saying, I'm offering this amount of money to hire dice to be placed on my ship as workers to help me move my ship around the board. So after each player has placed an amount of money on those two positions for their ship, then in turn order again, each player is going to roll three dice. And these dice are numbered from one to five, and then what would normally be a six is actually... A is actually a seasick sailor. The puke boy. We call him the puke boy. <laughs> it's actually a picture of a guy leaning over the, the side of the ship, <laughs> throwing up into the water. It's great. It's one of the best features of this game. Uh, so each player is going to roll those three dice, and then they're going to assign one of those dice to each of the other ships of the other players. You can't put the dice that you roll onto your own ship. You have to put them onto other players' ships. Mm-hmm. And then obviously anyone that you roll a puke boy doesn't get placed so once each of the die has been placed then each player again in turn order is going to add up the numbers on the die that were placed on their ship and they get to move their boat around the board that number of spaces finally after that each player is going to collect the the die that they placed out on the board and they're going to collect the wages that were placed Mm -hmm. out in front of that die so the goal is to get to four different islands and make it back to Tongabonga, like I said. Each time you visit an island, you're going to place a camp onto that island. And each time you place a camp, you're going to receive 25 coins. But the catch is that each time you place a camp, while you get that 25 coins, you also have to pay five coins to every other player who has already placed a camp onto that island. So getting to a particular island first obviously is a huge advantage in this game. Then once you've placed onto at least four different islands on the board, you head back to Tongabonga. The first player to make it back to Tongabonga is going to get a 10 coin bonus, and that triggers the final round of the game. Once that round finishes, whoever has the most money is the winner. So I think in a lot of the discussions that we had about this game after we played it, one of the topics that kept coming up was the arc. So how this game flows from the beginning to the end. I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts on the arc of this game and how that played out for you. Do you want to kick us off, Bill? (laughs) Sure. So it was kind of funny because Chris had just beat us in a previous game before when we started playing this game. (laughs) And so when we first started this game, Chris put a lot of money on his captain and first mate. and uh, We were all in the dock 
on the rock. Yeah, nobody was going anywhere. The game hadn't even freaking started yet. Okay, Yes, hadn't even started yet. So obviously the strategy is to get out of the blocks in a hurry and get to that first island because that's huge. Because everybody else after that is going to pay you five bucks. And so I'm going to quote Sun Tzu in their Art of War. <laughs> Here, Thus, what is of supreme importance in war is to attack the enemy's strategy. <laughs> so, so you knew Chris was ready to get out there and get ahead. So the rest of us at the table did not give <laughs> Chris any money on that, that first time. So what what's kind of interesting to me in this game is what the obvious strategy is to be fast and get to the islands as quickly as you can. What was fascinating to me is how the game ended up playing out. But I will say, the beginning game has a lot of tension about racing to the islands. And I think the bidding on those captains and first mate was a really interesting game dynamic to me. All right, I have to say something here. (laughs) Okay. All right. So in that particular game, I just so happened to be last in turn order. So that means I got to put my wages on my boat last. That's advantageous because I get to see what everybody else puts in front of me, right? So I knew what I had to bid to put the best wages down and try to get the best dice, right? So I was thinking, well, I'm just going to put one higher than the highest bid and try to move the farthest, right? We're all in port. Why would you not put your highest (laughs) dice on me? I'm not ahead of anybody. I'm not in the lead, (laughs) right? Nobody's in the lead yet, right? I bid the most money. I got the least <laughs> amount of dice than anybody else at the table. That's what you get for winning the game. Because before. you were being mean to me <laughs> and you were targeting me. That's the only explanation for this. But wait, Chris, who won that game? I won the game. <laughs> so I was whining and moaning the whole time. <laughs> Being a baby yeah. about it, I'll I'm tell just you, I was over here in last place. So I'm not going to get back. But I wasn't in last place. There. We were all tied for first. We haven't moved yet. So, so let me ask you the question: What could I have bid to move the farthest in that situation? I guess I could have bid thirty, right? <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is, and I don't want to jump to cons already, but I guess I have to mention it: is this game is a bit subject. To king making if you want it to be you can just be like no you're not moving if you want to now sometimes that can be strategic be king, right king denial king denial yeah anyway it's sour grapes over here for me i'm being a baby about it but you can definitely just be like no you're not moving i don't care what you're bidding wine wine oh look i won <laughs> so i will jump in on the original question concerning kmark there is a racing component to this game but it the winner is determined by who earns the most money. Right. You can't just win the race and win the game. So it's not a racing game in that respect. But I loved jumping off the blocks in the first couple of rounds and being like, how can I secure my spot on one of these islands and get the 25 and have everybody else paying me mm-hmm. and not be following behind Bill the entire time? <laughs> and so you have yeah. this opportunity at the beginning to go, where am I going to go and carve out my path to try to get an advantage that other people won't get because I was clever. And I felt that because I actually ended up being on a spot that was different from where a lot of other people went and I got paid for it. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I'll bring it up because I feel like it's coming. Right. (laughs) Oh yeah. As far as the arc of this game goes, I think aside from the King making aspect of it, there's actually really great decisions Mm -hmm. for most of this game. In the first, yeah first half of the game yeah right because you're constantly having to decide 
how much money is appropriate to offer mm-hmm. to get decent dice and then where am i going to assign my dice that i roll i can try to grab the highest wages that are out there but i'm also giving really valuable dice to other players who are then going to be able to move potentially farther than me i think those decisions are really great and it's what drew me to the game before i sought it out i was like wow this seems like really straightforward and simple but it seems like there could be a a pretty big decision space what happens towards the end of the game is that like cameron said while it's a race you don't win the game by winning the race right you win the game by having the most money and once you visited four islands there's not much incentive for you to actually get to the end of the race Mm -hmm. because by that point the only benefit that's left to you is a 10 coin bonus and if you end up spending more than 10 coins to get from your final island to the end then you've negated that bonus you've benefited nothing right yeah i mean it definitely poses problems and I think any player who's done well in the first part of the game will understand what's happening by the time you start playing that round. Just after you get your fourth island, you're like, great, I might get paid again when the rest of these jokers land on my islands. But I don't want to spend any money now because I'm going to end up outspending the bonus that I'm right. going to get. So why, why, why even try to move yeah. at all? And people figure that out because in the first half, there's this interesting, oh, should I bid more than this guy? Should I outbid him to try to move? And then once everybody's hit all the islands, everybody's just been like one coin on each spot. Right. That's so bad. Yeah. That's terrible, right? Like it, the game arc just totally dies yeah. because like you said, the, the 10 coin benefit of getting back is just not nearly enough. It needs to be way more yeah. than that. And, well, when and you scaled. figure that if you put a camp on an island, over the course of the game, depending on how many players, you could be netting essentially a total of 40 if you were the first person to get there, mm-hmm. right? Am I, am I doing my math right on that? Yep. So to get back to Tonga Marga to get 10, like that just right. seems like pennies, you it's, know? It's piddly Cabin piddly. boy wages. Yeah, exactly. It's piddly <laughs> Because, piddly. I mean, you're right. It's going to cost you to get back. So there is the element of, well, if I get to the end, I end the game for everyone else, right? And so anyone who is going to benefit by visiting more islands, if I end the game before they can do that, I have an advantage, right? But every game that we played, it seemed like everyone was homing in on the final island at just about the same time. So unless you have some insane lead early (laughs) on where you have that ability to get back first, tends to seem like it generally balances out and everybody's going to get back right around the same time. So you're not preventing that by ending the game earlier. Right, and, and that's because the game is designed in a way that you can pump the brakes on the leader. If somebody's way in the lead and the other people are trying to still scramble to hit those islands, where the other three players would just be like, well, we don't really care what you're offering. We're just going to give you crappy dice. So you can't get there so that we can get to these last islands, right? So they're mm-hmm. pulling the leader back. So that pretty much everybody hits those islands and starts heading back to Tonga Bonga at the same time. So do you think that's a bad thing? I think it's interesting that you can pump the brakes on the leader and affect them negatively, but it is a bit deflating that everybody does always seem to be coming in port at the same time every game. I've thought about this, so let's just take my example. You've got a guy that's swaying the lead. What are his options? He could be like, well... I'll just bid a ton and make you put good dice on me. But if he does that, 
He's throwing away. He's the throwing points. away the points that he's getting for getting back first, right? <laughs> so like, it doesn't make any sense. Why would he bid six on each spot if he's only getting ten to get back? That's a bad play. Yeah. Right? And not only are you paying more, but you're giving that money to, to your, your opponent. So it's funny to me to hear all the angst about the end part of it, because <laughs> to me, what was the cool part of it is, I think all of us looked at the board and saying, okay, this is kind of a racing game. We got to get the islands first because that's where the money is. And then Chris <laughs> in counter attacking us on our strategy racing the islands he started bidding one every bid for both walmart his cap- strategy exactly baby. walmart makes- <laughs> and so he ended up raking in big bucks he was the last person to get the island but he still made the money so he ended up devising a strategy in the face of our strategy because i think in this game jason and i were either number one or number two on all the islands it looked like as we were adding up the money that strategy ended up working and so to me that was kind of kind of a cool backlash on this is a one-dimensional game to being something more to it than what it looked like on the surface multiple paths to victory you gotta know how to play that pity party strategy (laughs) (laughs) so far behind guys everybody's being mean to me we are in the presence of a master master that one's acting all like a big baby (laughs) yeah no and i agree with you but i think that part of the game is in the first half of the game Mm -hmm. which i really like I like the first half of the game. Like, mm-hmm. it's like I think what we're all in agreement on is it just dies once everybody hits the islands. Yep. It's just like, poof, just falls off a cliff. I think it does. Anyway. Well, yeah, so should we move on to our, our final rating thoughts? I think Let's so. All right. Tonga Bonga was fun. I came back from vacation, and I hear like, oh, okay, we're doing this game. We're going to do Tonga Bonga. I roll hard. I'm kind of, what's there something going on here, you know, with Tonga Bonga? I got to play this game and see if I develop my own opinion. I would absolutely play this game again. I do wish it had a more climatic, tense, dramatic ending. But overall, I think it offers really great opportunities for tactical decision making, as the flavor text boasts. And I think we've been able to see that there there are multiple paths to victory, so you're not totally screwed if you can't be the first person to an island or don't get picked even when you bid high. Like in Chris's case, I mean, I think you proved that. I think it was a good example of that. I think that dice rolling adds an amount of randomness, though I could see a really bad streak of luck making it kind of frustrating if that happened to you because you wouldn't be able to get much money and you also wouldn't be able to move very much. The recruiting and island dividend mechanics do a lot for me in terms of overcoming the issues with the inn. So I am going to give Tonga Bongo a four. As it is. I think it, for me, I think this game could go higher than that if some rules were tweaked or if we came up with a way to fix the end. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I struggled with this game. Obviously, I purchased this game and I really wanted to like it. I think I fall in line with what we've been saying all along. I really enjoy the first part of this game. I Mm -hmm. do think that it's interesting. I think there's good decisions to be made. But the end game makes it a meh for me. (laughs) So I ended up rating this game a 3. But I say that also recognizing that every time I've played this game, I've enjoyed playing it, right? It's fun. It's it's a funny game <laughs> to see how it plays out on the board. It's super even, fun to be mean to your friends. Even when the end... Oh, whatever, you won. <laughs> even when the ending sort of peters out a little bit, it's light, it's quick. But yeah, I, I ended up having to settle on a three just because of some of the concerns that we've laid out here. I think that there are probably some solutions, but any game that you have to house rule in order to make it ultimately playable it's gonna get a ding from me so i ended up giving it a three 
right before we started talking about this, we talked about the age ranges for Hellas in this game. And both of these games are marked at like 10 and older. But Tonga Bonga really could go younger. I think we guessed 8. Would oh, be yeah, easy, for sure. Yeah, an easy, easy one. So one of the things, and maybe this is going to be a twist on your, on your ranking rules, is to think about the optimal setting where this game would really shine. And I could see playing this with my kids, you know, especially when they're at that age. Because it has a lot of cool things about dealing with money. You're racing, you know, the boats around. There is a diplomacy <laughs> component to it where you're like, hey, man, <laughs> can you give me that, that number? There's a, a fair amount of thinking to it. So I, I could see in that setting it would be really fun. With that said, I still enjoyed it how we did it. And I don't really have the heartburn at the end of the game. I felt like I was in lead, and I wasn't because Chris was. If I played it right, I could have played one all the way out and been the last one at home, and it really wouldn't have bothered me because... If other people had not gotten the islands, they would get to the islands and still give me five. And I wouldn't feel like they were catching up that much. So I, I didn't have that much of a heartburn in the end game. So what's your score? I'll give it a four. Sorry. Four. Oh, they were asking what was his score in the game. Because he definitely <laughs> spent last. a lot of money lot trying of money. to get back to Tonga Bonga. <laughs> I, I spent 40 to get 10. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I can learn something about finances. Yeah. This well, this is nice, guys. I'm glad y'all enjoyed this game so much. <laughs> so six? <laughs> oh, no. All right. So, I get what y'all are saying. I do think the first half of the game has fun elements. I'm not denying that. But I have to judge the game in its entirety. right? And for me, this game just absolutely dies once everybody hits all four of the islands. It falls apart. And I'm not the only one that feels that way. Another person in our game group, Mike Gifford, hates this game. Wow. Because he felt the same way. He was like, this is dumb. Now we're just all bidding one. Mm. And then somebody, whoever we decide is going to get back first, is going to get back first. And you know what? He's right. Mm -hmm. I cannot, in good conscience, for me, recommend this game to somebody as it is right now. Because I think it has problems. So this game gets a one from me. It has problems. Yeah. I I just don't know how I could be like, yeah, take this game, play it, knowing how it ends. Because people are going to be like, what the heck? You know, at least that's what I would think. I like your idea, Cameron, maybe trying to house rule or play with it. I think it has potential there to be I mean, fixable, but yeah. man, no, not for me. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't lose, Bill. <laughs> didn't lose. That's why I'm not saying it's a one. <laughs> I've actually played this game, I've won every time I've played this game, mm. and I'm still giving it a one because mm. I think it's got problems. Yeah, that was my hesitation too. I've enjoyed my plays of it, but I can't in good conscience recommend it. Got to balance out my six. It, right. it, it is a spit in the face of Hellas that these two games are ranked so close together. Uh, what the heck? <laughs> That's terrible. All right. Well, that concludes our thoughts on Tonga Bonga. Unless you don't want to talk about where we could get it, if yeah. it's possible. If people want to try us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you got kids, man. Tell me, why you're, tell me why I'm wrong. It yeah. wouldn't be the first time. But, but, if, <laughs> but if you wanted to try it, where would we get it okay yeah so there are 11 copies on bgg very affordable prices and a few on ebay as well so you can get it if you want cool. give it a go maybe a chris's <laughs> <laughs> it's not mine it's jason's yeah, it's oh. my it's my copy oh, but okay. i'm gonna buy this trash <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right well that's our thoughts on tonga Banga. The year is 1822. 
After years of decay, the decision is made to rebuild the Medina located at the foot of the Atlas Mountains. The players work together to erect large and beautiful palaces and to renovate the damaged city wall. Life returns to the old city. People flock through the alleys and contours of the new city gradually start to appear. Medina. Yes, Medina, second edition, published in 2014. So this game actually does have a first edition it was published in 2001 by Rio Grande Games, most recently by Stronghold Games. At the time of this recording, the second edition of Medina is ranked 1,215 on BGG. To be totally honest, I'm not sure where I heard about this game. I think I bought it based on appeal alone, the way that it looked on the shelf. Hmm. I think I have a bit of a fascination with city building games and the way that it looks. You know? It's a beautiful game. Yeah. It looks cool on the table mm-hmm. as you're playing mm-hmm. it, and when it's done, you feel like you've built something. Mm-hmm. And so I remember looking at this game on the back of the box, I was like, man, this looks cool. You know, that kind of city building aspect. So that kind of sucked me in. Mm-hmm. I've had this game for a long time. Because it's 3D. We should make that clear because we're in an audio format. You're actually building a 3D layout. It looks almost architectural. Yeah. Your pieces are not cardboard. They're mm-hmm. wooden chunky bits mm-hmm. and they feel awesome they're just fun to play with and place on the board it's got a really nice tactile feel to it so brief rule summary for medina as we said in the flavor text we're going to be constructing the city of medina by way of constructing palaces mainly the way that we're going to do that is very very simple your turn in this game is easy mm-hmm. all right in medina you place two wooden pieces on your turn that's it. That's your turn. You place two wooden pieces, it goes to the next person. They place two wooden pieces, and it goes around and around like that until everybody has played out all of their legal placements, and you've constructed Medina, and then whoever has the highest amount of points at the end of that process wins the game. Sounds so simple. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, but wait, dear listener. <laughs> it's more complicated than that. So the way the game gets tricky is that the pieces that you place are varied. So you have options about what you can place on your turn. I'm going to go through each one of these wooden pieces one at a time and explain what they are and how they work. The most basic piece that you're going to place is a palace. There are four different colors of palaces, and on your turn you can place a palace piece into the city walls of Medina. Once the players corporately have started a certain color palace, let's say I begin laying orange palaces on the board, nobody else can place orange palaces anywhere else on the board except for adjacent to the pieces that I or other players have already placed. You can't start two palaces of the same color at the same time and that's important. Unless somebody puts a rooftop on it. So every player has four rooftops of their own color and if you place a rooftop on top of a palace you are saying that is my palace. Once you've claimed a palace of a certain color you can no longer claim a palace of that color for the rest of the game. But the other players can, and they will. Okay. Once you've claimed a palace and put a rooftop on it, it can no longer be added to. And that's important too. So if I have a purple palace that's got four buildings in it, at the end of the game, that palace will at least be worth four points. One point per building in the palace. Now, how can you increase the points that your palace is worth? Well, there's another building type called stables. 
You can add these to any palaces, palaces you own, palaces you don't own, palaces that are unowned after they're already finished, and that will increase the value of a palace by a point. You also have something known as the merchant row. So there are these little meeples that are on the board and it's a line. They extend out in a line in two different directions, one on each end, and you can add to that row, extending the merchant rows throughout the city of the Medina. If you're able to get your owned palaces adjacent to that row, you'll get one point for each figure adjacent to your buildings. In addition, there's also the walls. So the walls will extend out from four corners of Medina, and if your palace is adjacent to the city walls, you'll get one point for every part of your palace that is adjacent to the city wall. Again, increasing the points of your palace, which is the goal in this game. You're basically trying to claim palaces and then make them maximally valuable. That's what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. All right. There's a couple other things that score points that I'll briefly mention. There's something known as the well or the fountain that's in the board. And if you are orthogonally adjacent one space away, if that makes sense, from the well, you'll get a bonus four points for that palace. And then if you have the largest palace in each color, so if I have the largest orange palace, I'll get four points for that. But if somebody overtakes me, they take those points from me if they generate a larger palace. And then finally, the towers are in the corner of the board and the walls extend out from the towers. If a palace you own makes contact with a wall that's in contact with a tower, you will get a point scoring tile for that tower. But again, much like the palace size, if somebody hooks into that tower at a later time, they take that tile from you. So again, it's brutal. this game has a timing aspect to it. Sounds familiar, doesn't yeah. it? So yeah, that's all I'll say about the rules for now. There are a couple other finer details that we'll probably cover in the discussion specifically about timing and things like T-tiles, but I'll stop there for now. And we'll get into discussion. So this is an interesting game. It's very unique in my opinion. So I'll ask you guys, if somebody were to look at this game on the shelf and be like, Medina, that looks cool. What's that game about? How would you describe this game to them? <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. I've been racking my brain because I feel like I've played other games that have a similar mechanism. The thing that stands out to me the most is the palaces are slowly growing over time and then you have to jump on one and claim it and then that's the only yeah. time you can ever claim that color. But there's the possibility, well, if I hold off now, it's going to go around and somebody else is going to get it before I can. I I know that I've played other games that have that similar mechanism and that's the thing that stands out to me, but I cannot place the, the specific game. So I'm not sure how I would qualify it. Yeah, and I'm not asking so much like a specific game. You know how when we explain games to people, we're like, oh yeah, this is a worker placement game. Oh yeah, this is a deck builder. This is an area control game. How would you explain this to people? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. And like the way that you just explained it, it's like the core mechanism is something like property optimization or something (laughs) like that. Yeah, so you're placing wooden pieces on the board that represent something in an attempt to gain space and position yourself advantageously on the board. You're trying to maximize and optimize are the two words that come into yeah. mind. I don't know if, because it, it is an unusual, unique game. Yeah. 
So what's interesting is it's, it's city building on a, a sure, first story. Yeah. So by the time you get to the end of it, it actually looks gorgeous because it does look like a city. But then it's also a bidding game as you're building the city. So it's interesting because that feels like that's not descriptive enough because there's so many moving parts to it. But it's like a city building bidding game, yeah. maybe. And it, I agree with you. It's definitely a city building game for sure. And I'm not trying to trick you all. I, I was really interested to see how you would characterize it. I think it is hard to explain. But the more I thought about it, I began to realize... This is an abstract strategy game. Mm-hmm. It's hard to recognize it as such, I think, because when we think about abstract games, we often think of two-player games, mm-hmm. right? Because most abstract games are two-player games. You take a turn, I take a chess, go, shobu, whatever. You do something, I do something. We're placing pieces on the board to take space. But in this game, it's a four-player game mm-hmm. or a three-player game. And I think that's interesting <laughs> Because in this game, you really play this tough game with yourself of like, well, I have good places I could put these pieces, but if I make it too good, it's not going to make it back around to me, right? Mm -hmm. If I make this palace too good, they're just going to take it. So now what do I do? Well, I try to put it somewhere maybe not super useful, or do I? I don't know. It's hard, right? Because if if you make a palace or something too juicy, they're just going to snatch it, right? So you're constantly playing this game of, oh, do I just take it now or do I put another piece on it and hope somebody else maybe adds to it and I grab it later? It's tough. That's kind of got an abstract feel to it, but it's not two players. Mm-hmm. I was I was thinking about it, but I was going to describe it as a FOMO game <laughs> because every move it feels like you're... <laughs> yeah, that's if, a great if, description. If you're, if you're missing out because even if you take the palace, you have a fear that you're not going to get a, a better palace that's going to come later. Yeah. Or even when you play a wall or... Or if you put your meeple down, somebody else is going to turn the corner away from yep. where you need it to go. And so one of the things I was going to call out that's different than Hellas is that Hellas, when you make a move, you can kind of feel good about it. Almost every move you make in this game is like you have this fuzzy angst about it, yep. whether it was good or not, until until the end of the game. And then it, then it, then it, then it manifests whether it was yeah. good or not. So it's just it's an interesting feeling as you're playing this whole game. Oh, yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, Bill. It's so hard, this feeling of, are people going to have better palaces than me because I took it early and, you know, like you said, FOMO. I think that's a brilliant way to put it. But you can control things in this game by the way that you place buildings or the way that you can intentionally cause the merchant road to dead end on itself. Mm -hmm. So I didn't explain this in the rules, but... If you ever have to place a merchant to where it's adjacent to other merchants, it dies on that end. And you can make this happen and then pick up and put that merchant row and start it somewhere where you want. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'll put this building here and block your palace in and make it less valuable or you can't expand it. You can control it, but it's very opaque in that way. Yeah. There's a timing component too because when you get to the end of the game if you have lots of options left and you are a person who hasn't chosen a palace yet and they still have blocks in the palace and they have to play they have to give you points and build in your palace so there is maybe 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 right so it's it it may not work out that way but there's a there's a game of chicken to it as well that you might wait to the end of the game but you're right you might also find that you don't have a palace at all if you you go with that strategy that was one of the things that really stuck out to me because the very first time i played this i was like all right i'm going to play smart i'm going to play the long game i'm going to wait it out everybody else is going to be suckers they're going to jump in they're going to grab palaces early and i'm just going to be sitting there waiting and at the end of the game, everybody's going to have to build me a giant palace, and I'm going to do awesome. Nope. 
But by the time that actually happened, the board was full. <laughs> and so I was waiting to put my awesome palace down after everybody else had grabbed theirs and there was no space left. So you have to constantly be evaluating, all right, I'm going to play the long game and try to hold out and force other people to have to build something big for me. But if you wait too long, there's not space left and it's just not going to happen. So I found that equally interesting and frustrating at the same time. Yeah, I struggled very much in this game with the, I I guess, FOMO. So my first play, I didn't actually get all four color buildings because... On the one hand, I pulled the trigger too early on some colors, and then I was like, oh, I pulled the trigger too early, so then I waited. And then it was like, well, I can't even get orange down on the table. So that can definitely happen. And I I was just thinking, Stefan Dorham, he must love when other people have to give him points. (laughs) Like, I just feel like, because he's able to make it happen in so many of these games. Other people are going to give me points. You're going to have to give them away. It's such a painful thing to be like, oh, man, I'm helping you. Yeah, I hear what you're saying about that stalling game and getting people to build for you. It can be done. I've seen it done. I've been able to do it myself, although it's hard to set up. But I do think that element of stalling, I didn't mention in the rules, there are these things called T-tiles, where if you claim a purple building, you get a certain number of T-tiles, and that lets you forgo one of your two placements. And you can wait people out, to where either they don't have anything left to place and they have to add on to you or just as bad. They're like, well, I'm not going to add on to Chris's palace and make it bigger, but now I have to put this merchant somewhere and I was kind of wanting to hold on to it and put it somewhere where it helps me, but now I don't really know how to help myself, so I have to play it, right? So you can't put your opponents in a bind Mm -hmm. through that stalling game by them not wanting to help you. Right. And, And I think that happens a lot. And another place where you can engage in that delaying tactics is there are meeples or merchants on the four corners too that you can pick up mm-hmm. three with a with a wall placement at the right time and at the end game if you have five extra merchants that somebody else didn't have you could be you know creating a, a merchant train and they're having to drop palace pieces down and it can it can make a big difference yeah yeah so one thing i wanted to highlight is i feel like this game does a great job bearing out the theme in the gameplay i love that i love the connection between the city being built and the meeples that you place in the streets as a game mechanic also being sort of symbolic of the population returning to the city that's genius to me yeah yeah i actually did not make that connection until i read the flavor text to prepare for this and i was like yeah wow that is so cool yeah, that little line of meeples is like a bazaar that's mm-hmm. just extending through, and you see the palaces coming up, right. the walls getting built. It's just got a cool presence. It, it totally makes so much more sense than dudes randomly standing around buildings. Like the fact that it's like, no, they're coming there to do business, they're setting up their shop. I love yeah, stuff like that. That's good. Anybody have anything they didn't like about the game? A lot of positive stuff so far. Yeah, there's one thing that I, I think I do actively dislike. I think it's a con. It's possible to force another player to take a tile for a given building if you place a wall next to their building. Why is that a bad thing? <laughs> because it happened to be multiple times. <laughs> That's glorious. <laughs> I, That's I, glorious and it's great play. I felt like I struggled to, to be able to mitigate it. Right? So there, oh, I love that. So there, there were several occasions where it was like, okay, I'm intentionally going to hold back on building the wall here. <laughs> yeah. Because I know that I'm going to be handed this tile and then I'm going to be holding on to it. 
And then someone is going to come over here and they're going to be like, I'm going to build a wall right here next to yours. Here, have a point. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> I love and, that. And then, and for my second move, I'm going to place the wall here and now I take that tile from you. Yes. Ah, oh, That's great. It just, it just cr- crushes me. <laughs> it's just the worst thing. You feel like you're doing great. You feel like you're holding back and being strategic and then someone's like, yeah, I'm going to drop a cannonball on that. Oh, yeah. I, I've seen people... Put stables on other people's palaces mm-hmm. to hook them into walls to make them take that towel so they can take oh, it back right, from them. Yeah. That's so. Oh, that's. I love it. Here, have a point. I'll take four. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the things I will say is there's a long delayed gratification to everything you're doing in the game. You don't really know until you get to the end, or I, I don't know. That's not necessarily exactly true, but there's a lot of angst. All the way through the game. Some tension, maybe, Some Bill? tension. There's some tension. I mean, at the end of the game, I don't know. Did I just have fun, or did I not? <laughs> it was just... It's a, an intense game. Yeah, I think for me, the, the end game, for me, was a little bit frustrating. And it, I guess it's my own fault, right? But it seems like, towards the end, every time I've played, I end up in a situation where I'm like, well, I have to play three more turns of this game, and I'm not going to be able to do anything to help myself. <laughs> All I'm going to do is help other people, but I'm forced to play these pieces. I mean, I guess that's a indication of poor planning, right? And I will say this game frustrated me both times I played it. it, I felt like I was losing the whole time every time I played because I'm like, I'm doing terrible. But then in the end, it turns out, you know, I wasn't doing nearly as bad as I thought. I still lost. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting end game where you can be forced into a situation where you're like, well... There's going to be five more turns of this game, and I have to play all these pieces out, but none of them are going to help me. Mm-hmm. So trying to figure out how to do minimal damage to yourself uh, at the end of the game. One other comment I'd like to make is how different the game plays when you have three players versus four mm-hmm. players. Because a three-player game has a dynamic where <laughs> you get a neutral tile. so that A neutral rooftop. A neutral rooftop. So I have that, feelings about this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, and I, I actually liked it, but you could look at a palace that's going up out there, and if you've already taken a palace, is this true? You can put your... Even if you haven't yet, you can do it anytime. Anytime, right. You can knock a palace out of the running mm-hmm. for, for everybody, which to me, I enjoyed it, especially if you're the one who holds on to your tile, because everybody else is feeling angst about when are you going to play that tile, and it makes them jump on a palace sooner than they might have. Yeah, it so. adds a little extra ounce of viciousness in an already vicious game (laughs) right yeah so i played three players the very first time i played this game and that's probably part of why i feel the way i do about it but (laughs) there's a lot of swear words down at the end of the table angry (laughs) it felt we were over there enjoying hellas on the other end this was also the game where i was trying to play the long game from the beginning so i played the long game and then it got to the point where the only thing left out there was every other player had their extra rooftop that they could just stymie me with anytime they wanted. It's like, well, now is my opportunity to shine, right? Everybody else has placed all their rooftops. I'm going to come out and I'm going to score big. But it's like, no, because (laughs) now I have these gotcha rooftops out there that are just going to stymie me every time I want to do something. And so... Jason, was this the one that you wanted? Okay. That's where I'll put mine. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that was frustrating, I think. But again, I think learning more about the game and having played it more since then i think i've learned what not to do (laughs) and it's definitely to keep an eye out for those uh extra rooftops (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, one more thing I need to mention before we move on to final thoughts. Because if you're looking to acquire this, you should know this. So, interestingly, this game has a mold problem. Okay? <laughs> this is the thing. This just isn't my copy. So, when I first got my copy of Medina, I noticed that the box was moldy. Okay? I thought it was just a texture thing inside the box. I was like, oh, they, they, <laughs> they printed this really weird pattern on the inside of the box. Yeah, it's not a liner. It's mold. Okay. So I had to do a little bit of cleaning. It, it really wasn't that bad, but apparently some copies are much worse than others. If you read some of the posts on BGG, of which there are numerous about that, there are some people that are just like weeping and gnashing their teeth over this, like Medina's public health crisis or something. <laughs> Going through a step-by-step process on how to clean your pieces and keeping yourself safe and protected from Medina. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it, you know... Just don't be make a, them you know instructions like that just be aware that it could be a little moldy all right and i couldn't figure out why that happened stronghold never gave a statement on why but it's a thing yeah, don't touch your eyes after you play <laughs> exactly there is a medina vaccine out there it's a two shot and one other thing i thought was funny apparently there's one other game that has mold problems east Oh. I'm trying to kill us all with this Eesh. podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah, huh. I didn't notice it. Never no, that was my it. reaction. East. East, yeah. yeah. I never noticed it, but apparently East has mold problems too, so let's <laughs> be aware. But at any rate. All right. Well, let's talk about final ratings. I'll start. This is such a good game. <laughs> I think I'm in love with Stefan Dora, man. <laughs> Are we going to get a two for tonight? Stefan Dora and Stefan Feld. This game has such good decisions in it. It's this really subtle game of careful piece placement and management, not trying to help others out too much, looking for those opportunities where you can get ahead. It's subtle, right? But I like the subtlety of it. It makes for really tough decisions, and it's so satisfying when you can dead in that merchant row and drop it right in an alley between two of your palaces, and you're like, yes, you know, while trying to not help your opponents. So good. I could go on and on, but I I won't. I think it's fantastic. This is another six for me, guys. Oh my wow. Gosh. Two in one episode. I freaking love this game. Both of them. Hellas and Medina. Awesome. Masterworks, in my opinion. Wow. So, yeah. Great. Gravy. Awesome. Yeah, for all of my, quote Chris, weeping and gnashing of teeth over this game and complaining about how poorly I did every time I played it, the frustration was a good kind of frustration, I think. I had some concerns about it after the first time I played it, uh, especially playing it three-player about the, the game arc and trying to play the long game and whether that was actually a viable strategy. I think having played it since, I've seen that actually is a viable strategy if you know how to do it right. Mm-hmm. I think this is a game that has a learning curve for sure. So if you're thinking about picking it up, just know that first play is going to be a little rough. But... I really enjoyed this game. I, I gave it a five. I think it's a, a wow. really, I think it's a really solid game. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it, <laughs> despite all my complaining. <laughs> Take it away, Bill. I'd say I like it too. Both of these games, or all the games that we played, have pretty simple rules and then kind of a deeper strategy that follows it. And that's the kind of game that's kind of my sweet spot because I don't like games that have rules for rules' sake. And then these to have zero of that. I have to say, a lot of these games, I felt a lot of angst all the way through it. And truly, I felt, am I really having fun while I'm doing this? But I'm going to give it a five just because I would want to play it again because I had some unsatisfying finishes in some games. Like, I know I can do better. But they have some great 
moments, like ending the merchant train or, or hitting your wall and stealing your four <laughs> points. I mean, that just felt so good. So yeah, I think it's a good solid five. Awesome. Yeah, I enjoyed Medina a lot. This game induces a kind of anxiety and focused planning in me that I rarely experience in board games. Usually that means I end up claiming my buildings early with plans, but mostly hopes that I can enhance them later to make them worth more. But I think it really does a good job of creating that tension we're always looking for in games because this game is really competitive. Your Mm -hmm. opponents can swing in unexpectedly and take things away from you that you thought were all yours. You also have to watch out for opportunities to give stuff away to opponents. You're never safe, and I like that in games. Because the board is so small and you must place two tiles every turn, Medina has an enforced pace that keeps the game from being too drawn out, which is a favorable mark for me. I rate Medina a 5. Yes. It's an excellent game. I think other gamers should play it. I really hope people will go out and try to find a way to play this game, whether it's buy it, whether it's, I don't know, play it at a convention. Mm-hmm. If that is a thing pro, that pro. could even happen. But yeah, I definitely think others should play it. It's a 5. Man, this makes me super happy and super sad at the same time. Because <laughs> this game is long gone, people. <laughs> it sucks. I have to think that somebody will bring this back. Because it's highly rated. So with Hellas, it's in the almost the 5,000s, right? With Medina, it's 1,200. That's pretty respectable. Yeah, yeah. And it looks so cool on the table. I would imagine it will come back. But there are only three copies on BG right now, and they're sky high. There's one on eBay, too, and it's super expensive as well. Mm-hmm. So Hard to get right now, but I, I have to think it'll come back. If you ever had a chance to grab it, though, do it. It's amazing. Awesome. Well, then I'll wrap it up for Medina. Wrap it up for Medina and Stefan Dora. That's right. Well, thank you so much for listening to our show. As always, we owe a debt of gratitude to everyone who follows and interacts with us on social media, and especially those of you who have taken the time to rate the podcast on your platform of choice or leave us a review on Google or Apple Podcasts. Thank you guys for that. All of that really helps expose the show to others who might be interested in what we're doing here at Hidden Gems. So please share the show with your friends, connect with us on social media if you like what we're doing here. Um, And until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. This is Chris. I'm Jason. And this is Bill. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems, number seven, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on May 9, 2021. Did you enjoy today's format? Be sure to join us in two weeks when we will be talking all about card games with another special guest host from our game group. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonflip. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at BoardGameGeek.com. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems. And until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I always go last. No, you. No, I always. I always.
go yeah, last. Yeah, Cameron goes last. Because then he says, thanks for <laughs> listening to our show. What in the world? <laughs> it's our first time I doing that. this, everyone. Last. Oh, my gosh. All right. We're, gonna go We're replacing you with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I can say my name is Jason. <laughs> Potato. Good grief. All right. Mm-hmm.